Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated. This activity is titled Management of Multiple Sclerosis, Part 2 of 2, MRI Abnormality, the Radiologically Isolated Syndrome. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Aaron Miller. Dr. Miller is a professor of neurology and medical director at the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, New York. Dr. Miller has disclosed that he receives grant research support from Accorda Therapeutics, Genentech Incorporated, Genzyme Corporation, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Sanofi Aventis, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to Accorda Therapeutics, Biogen IDEC, Daiichi Sanko, EMD Serono Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck Serono, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Ono Pharmaceutical Company Limited, Sanofi Aventis, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. He serves on the speakers' bureaus of Biogen, IDEC, EMD Serono Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Today's featured author is Dr. Darren T. Okuda. Dr. Okuda is an assistant clinical professor of neurology at UCSF Multiple Sclerosis Center at the University of California, San Francisco, in San Francisco, California. Dr. Okuda has disclosed that he receives grant research support from EMD Serono Incorporated and Pfizer Incorporated. He serves as a consultant to Pfizer Incorporated. He has received honoraria or speaker's fees from Teva Neuroscience Incorporated. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 427. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience that they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Over the next hour, Dr. Miller and Dr. Okuda will be discussing and taking questions regarding an article in Neurology titled, Incidental MRI Anomalies Suggestive of Multiple Sclerosis, the Radiologically Isolated Syndrome. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to identify the objectives and methods of the clinical study, list the diagnostic criteria for radiologically isolated syndrome, and evaluate the results of the study and consider the implications in clinical practice. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club. Hello. It is my pleasure to welcome you to today's Neuroscience Continuing Medical Education Journal Club. I'm Dr. Aaron Miller the medical director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I'm excited to be the moderator for this Neuroscience CME Journal Club series on the topic today of incidental MRI anomalies suggestive of multiple sclerosis, the radiologically isolated syndrome. I'm joined today by Dr. Darren Okuda, Dr. Okuda is an assistant clinical professor of neurology at the University of California, San Francisco Multiple Sclerosis Center. Dr. Okuda is the lead author on the recently published paper entitled Incidental MRI Anomalies 
suggestive of multiple sclerosis, the radiologically isolated syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Okuda, and we look forward to your summary of the article. Great, Dr. Miller. Thank you. Uh, well, we embarked on a study that focused on individuals who were evaluated uh, with MR imaging for another medical reason, and following that investigation, findings were observed, anomalies, if you will, that were suggestive of demyelinating disease. What we did was to retrospectively study this unique cohort and to try to identify predictors for clinical and radiological progression based on this small cohort. Now, at times, we do see anomalies within the central nervous system, and these are classified in medical parlance as being unidentified bright objects, or UBOs. Uh, Sometimes we do see other pathologies that are, or other findings that are indicative of other medical conditions other than MS. At times we do see features within a person's brain MRI scan that are highly suggestive of multiple sclerosis. And this was our principal area of of focus and target. We looked at predictors for radiological conversion, and what we did see was that if a person possessed contrast enhancement on their imaging study, they were at risk or or possessing uh, a threefold risk of having radiological progression over time. From a clinical standpoint, of the 44 patients that we did study, we did identify clinical conversion in 33% of the cohort, and this occurred over a time frame of approximately five years, a medium time frame of five years. So the big uh, results here from our study are, are twofold. One, we've identified that those with contrast-enhancing lesions who possess no symptoms whatsoever, they have a hazard ratio of 3.4, the p-value of 0.01, of experiencing future radiologic progression. And number two, those with what we call RIS, and we've generated criteria for this unique cohort, uh, they are at risk of converting clinically to either CIS or CDMS over time, and that And our observed findings within this small cohort suggest that a third of them uh, may go on to progress clinically over the course of a median time frame of five years. And our overall conclusions were that uh, this is an at-risk group, and these individuals uh, who possess these findings in which we have no better reason for why they are there are definitely uh, at risk of progressing further, both radiologically and clinically. And this somewhat highlights the importance of future studies and perhaps uh, a a different direction in the study of multiple sclerosis in an effort to reveal its underlying biological mechanisms. Well, thank you, Dr. Okuda. I have a number of of questions that might help us um, elaborate on the findings of your study. 
First of all, why were most of these people imaged in the first place? I mean, what what was the rationale for obtaining these brain MRIs? So that's a very good question. Uh, most of the patients or subjects that we studied underwent imaging for migraine headaches, mm-hmm. or they were research control subjects. They were paid a small fee to be a research control subject for a Parkinson's study at a large university. Uh, some individuals had uh, unique situations. Uh, they were involved in uh, motor vehicle accidents. Uh, they had syncopal episodes. Uh, two patients actually were lactating spontaneously, and and the list goes on. So there are many, many different reasons as to why uh, these individuals underwent uh, MR imaging of the brain. Do you have Do you have any idea how common this uh, phenomenon would be of finding patients who were imaged for um, sort of uh, well other reasons anyway without MS being suspect to who who would be harboring this kind of a brain MRI? So we have an estimate, and we're unsure if it's truly accurate. But if we are uh, to take known numbers meaning that in the United States there are approximately 400,000 patients afflicted with multiple sclerosis, which represents a prevalence of 0.1%. And if we uh, consider that there are approximately 2.4 million patients afflicted with MS worldwide, what is the prevalence of RIS? When we look at pathological studies, studying large autopsy series and their data, uh, with respect to identifying cases that possess incidental demyelination on postmortem examination, the prevalence there turns out to be approximately 0.1 to 0.2 percent. So, by extrapolating those numbers, one could argue that perhaps the overall prevalence of RIS may equal that of established MS cases. The problem with that line of thought, though, is that we are not applying criteria that have high degrees of sensitivity and specificity, such as the Barkoff criteria. Those criteria were not used in those postmortem cases. What are the Barkoff criteria? So the Bar- how have they generally been used? So the Barkoff criteria, uh, criteria we used were to establish dissemination in space. And essentially, you need to meet uh, three or four of the Barkoff criteria, possessing nine T2 hyperintensities or one GAD-enhancing lesion, possessing a, an infratentorial lesion, a juxtacortical lesion, or three periventricular lesions, and meeting three, at least three or four of those criteria. The criteria were generated to enhance the sensitivity and specificity of, of what that process actually is, and it does help us with respect to our accuracy in arriving at a given diagnosis. It's not 100% specific, so we are um, unfortunately not absolutely correct uh, when we use these criteria. Um, Our effort was to also add other components in the RIS criteria uh, to somewhat boost up the, the specificity for unanticipated uh, disease. Now, I realize that uh, the criteria that you established for the so-called radiologically isolated syndrome 
did incorporate the Barkoff criteria, but as you said, you, you added some other features. Can, can you elaborate a little bit on, on what exactly were your criteria for calling something a, a radiologically isolated syndrome? Okay, great. So first off, the criteria that we uh, generated included the following. You needed to possess radiological features that contained a specific morphology. So what we're looking for are lesions that are very MS-like, meaning lesions that are ovoid, they're well circumscribed, they're homogeneous, and they, can't, and they may or may not involve the corpus callosum. Ideally, we'd like to see involvement of the corpus callosum, but we don't necessarily see that all the time. Uh, these lesions also need to be of a specific size. They need to be greater than three millimeters. And the reason for that cutoff is that for your stereotypical unidentified bright object or small punctate change that may be the result of some migraine headache phenomena uh, or other age-related change, uh, those tend to be less than that size. So we want lesions or an MRI picture overall that has the flavor of multiple sclerosis where lesions are uh, of a given appearance uh, and that they are located geographically in specific areas of the brain as well. Uh, we want to make sure that these also don't follow a large vessel vascular pattern, and we want to make sure that other components within the history aren't present as well, meaning uh, the individual does not have a history of recreational drug abuse. Uh, want to make sure that these individuals have never ever experienced a clinical symptom that um, another disease process is not responsible uh, for the given appearance that's in front of us. Uh, we did want to exclude also MRIs that contained an extensive amount of white matter change that uh, has an appearance of being very symmetric or what's referred to as leukoareosis, uh, principally because over the course of time for, for an individual, if there is chronic microischemic change, it could really take on a symmetric appearance deep within the brain that can resemble multiple sclerosis. So it seems that you're being very cautious about what you call RIS and really looking for, for an imaging pattern that looks pretty specific uh, for demyelinating disease, Correct. For, for inflammatory demyelinating disease. Absolutely. Um, so for those people in our audience who are are practitioners who may encounter in their neurological practice um, a patient who's, who gets an MRI. Let's say they had an MRI because they'd been in a minor uh, automobile accident with a minor head injury, and one sees this type of uh, MR picture. Um, how, what would you advise that physician to, to tell the patient? Well, that's a really complicated question. And uh, for one, I think that we should uh, be upfront and, and be honest with patients in terms of the findings that we see. I think we need to uh, do other things as well to ensure that another medical process is not responsible for what we're, we're seeing uh, on the given structural neuroimage. Uh, and work from there devising a plan as to further diagnostic uh, tests that could be pursued to find an answer 
uh, for these changes. Uh, and if ultimately it turns out to be something that has an appearance very consistent with MS, uh, devising a plan, uh, a clinical surveillance plan uh, for the future uh, so that these individuals are not lost to follow-up, but there's an established plan that's generated by both the care provider and the physician uh, to ensure that uh, we are keeping proper surveillance. So I gather that um, that you would agree from the time of this first image that you certainly would not tell that patient that he or she has multiple sclerosis at that time. Correct. No. Yeah, and that's that's what we um, try not to do. Uh, the internet's a scary thing these days, and uh, I, I think that when you see an image that may have an appearance like MS, there's still a number of other things that still need to be pursued uh, to ensure that uh, it's not something else. Well, let's assume that you've you've seen this image and there and you don't turn up any other disease processes that are likely to be causing that that MRI picture. Um, you would recommend follow-up MRI, I assume. I would. And in those instances, an annual MRI scan uh, would be reasonable for that given individual. Uh, there are situations where uh, these subjects are, are more hypervigilant and they are interested in, in undergoing an MRI uh, perhaps twice a year, uh, which we have no objection with. So let's assume that they they have gone ahead and gotten a follow-up MR image at whatever time frame, and it comes back with uh, with with new lesions. Uh, uh, what would you tell the patient now? I think most people would still agree that one would be very reticent to tell that patient that she actually has a diagnosis of MS at that point. Correct, and you bring up a fantastic point and a point uh, that's uh, being heavily debated uh, within this area of study. What do you do when you see a young woman who has a repeat scan, say six months after the initial scan or a year, and now you're seeing contrast-enhancing lesions or more lesions, despite the fact that she's still completely asymptomatic? Um, we know that this is not multiple sclerosis. She is not experienced a clinical symptom yet, but she is experiencing uh, progression, at least MR progression. And do these individuals require treatment? Well, that is, is so difficult to address right now. Treatment is something that we are not advocating for at this point. However... It's interesting that, you know, that is obviously the 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 real elephant in the room is is what to do about addressing a changing MRI in a clinically asymptomatic patient. And uh, as you undoubtedly know, uh, your article was accompanied by an editorial uh, written by Dennis Burdett, a, uh, a well-respected MS clinician and researcher at the University of Oregon, and by Jack Simon, who is a, uh, uh, an equally well-respected M MS neuroimager, and uh, they came down very strongly um, uh, in opposition to even considering treatment in, in a patient who has had a repeat MRI that shows a change. And the, their statement was specifically that should one 
consider that idea? And they said, quote, our answer is an emphatic no. Um, do you think that might be a little strong, uh, or are there circumstances where one might want to engage the patient in a dialogue about the pros and cons of, of possible treatment? I think engaging the patient in a dialogue is, is something that should be done. Uh, I, I think that many times we don't have scientific data for decisions that we make in clinic on a daily basis, uh, yet we take individual cases and make medical decisions based principally on that individual and not based on populational data. Uh, I, I do think that you know, there, there are two aspects to this, and one is a scientific side with class one, class two data that suggests that any given medicine uh, is beneficial for RIS and therefore should be used. Well, we don't have that now. And then there's the other humanistic side of what do we do when a 25-year-old woman comes to see you and she has lesions in her brain stem and throughout her brain that are now contrast-enhancing, and it somewhat goes against the, the dogma of what we're instructed in in neurology, where you know the brainstem is a very uh, high real estate area, and if there are any areas of involvement there, you would expect to see something clinically. And in these individuals, we do see progression, yet no symptoms whatsoever, even upon or no signs of disease. Also, even upon rigorous neurological examinations, it is truly difficult. Uh, and we've had patients within our cohort of study that have been exposed to treatments. And I think that patients and these subjects still have the option and should know the, the, the benefits and detriments of, of going on, on any therapy. You know, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think this is a very controversial and complicated issue. Um, but I, I think that it's not simply a matter, if we could put nomenclature aside, and do away with semantics. The real, the real issue about treatment are, are weighing risks and benefits and weighing the probabilities of success versus the, uh, the potential risks associated with the treatment. And it's a little bit hard for me to see a really a, a substantial difference between a patient with a radiologically isolated syndrome who develops typical new demyelinating lesions at some time down the road to, to say that the decision about whether to treat that patient should depend on whether or not they've had, for example, a very minor episode in which they may have developed some numbness in a girdle distribution for a few days. Yes, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, many cases that we see, many MS cases, established MS cases that we do see in clinic, many of these patients possessed imaging findings that appear to be dated. They present to you uh, with an MR picture that suggests that they have brain atrophy that's outside the realm of what would be expected for that person's age. You see T1 hypointensities that suggest that a given lesion was at least greater than six or, or ten months of age. So, we, you know, there are features there. The, the, what is the underlying pathology here, if it is demyelinating disease, then in essence, any single platform therapy should have some degree of benefit in helping to uh, prevent 
any further change from occurring. I, I do see how the skeptics are, are arguing their point, though, and that is that if we look at CIS for, for one second, not all cases ultimately go on to clinically definite MS or MS defined by McDonald criteria, and that argues that perhaps we're over-treating subjects. But, you know, I think that in, in RIS, when we have uh, cases that are very complex where people are generating or are um, collecting new lesions over time, I think it, it boils down to more of an individualistic uh, type of treatment plan and an open discussion uh, with that given uh, subject and their family members. And I, and I think um, your group is not the only group that have made um, similar observations about patients uh, who had coincidental MRI findings suggestive of MS, and it's uh, it's remarkable how strikingly similar the the findings were for from LeBrun's French group that yes. presented similar kinds of patients. Uh, definitely. So uh, they they reported on a modest cohort as well uh, of 30 patients, I believe. Uh, initially, and uh, they've been following them uh, over the course of time, and they recently uh, published the follow-up in the archives of neurology on, on their cohort of study. Uh, this is a hot topic. I think that MS specialists and scientists are looking for other ways of studying MS, and I think that this is, this is a, a great way to do it. Uh, I think there are a number of things that, that still need to be done, and I think the number one thing is to understand the natural history of RIS and understand what groups are at highest risk or what is the group that is stratified at being at uh, the highest risk for developing CIS or CDMS. Right. So clearly uh, we would be helped by a scientifically designed prospective study rather than the retrospective cohorts that have been looked at which have piqued our interest here. And I think you mentioned in your paper that you have a prospective study underway. Can you tell us a little about that? Uh, correct. So um, we're trying to solidify uh, funding for our prospective study. Uh, what we've done is to create a formal environment where patients are being scanned at 3Tesla annually. And along with that, they are having a formal uh, neurological examination and uh, other measures uh, performed, uh, EDSS, uh, multiple sclerosis, functional composite. And we're following individuals um, long-term looking at those metrics, clinical and radiological metrics. What we also hope to do is to genotype these individuals and to obtain gene expression profiles at at some point in this investigation. But our overall goal right now is, is to follow these individuals prospectively and to understand the natural history, the natural course of, of this condition better, um, so that one day, once all these data are available, we've identified uh, the group that is stratified as, as being at uh, highest risk for, for progression. And perhaps we could introduce any given therapy or, or a given platform therapy a few years down the line in a very large trial. 
Well, clearly that's going to be a very important study. Uh, unfortunately, it's not going to give us a short-term answer, and each individual practitioner is going to have to uh, weigh the information that we have available when, when having this important dialogue with patients. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Okuda for uh, sharing uh, your insights with us today. You've certainly answered the questions that I had. Now let's open up the lines to our listeners and provide them the opportunity to ask their own questions. All right. While, while we're uh, waiting to take audience questions, I, I'd like to let our audience know that there are additional online resources available at www.neurosciencecme. That's N-E-U-R-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. CME .com. At the conclusion of this question and answer session, you will automatically be redirected to this site. I encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. So um, while we're waiting, um, do you know whether there's any data, um, Dr. Okuda, um, on follow-ups of these patients? Uh, there was a recent publication by our uh, French uh, colleagues uh, that was published in the Archives of Neurology that provided an update uh, in this unique cohort, and it was published uh, uh, sometime in 2009. Uh, to my knowledge, that's the only follow-up study that exists at this point. Uh, we're in the process of, of preparing data for the American Academy of Neurology meeting in 2010 in April. Uh, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, identify a, a practical predictor uh, for clinical progression. And I think we've, we, we, have an, we definitely have an interesting finding uh, for sure. Um, one could expect that these cohorts are somewhat very heterogeneous. And uh, it's, it's ironic that uh, we did arrive at the same number for clinical progression uh, in, in both groups. Uh, but I think that uh, we definitely need much more data to truly understand the risk of conversion, both on MRI scan and, and clinically. So one of um, one of our listeners has asked whether you recommend using the Barkoff criteria on all patients who present with MS symptoms. So this person is a primary care physician and, and wants to have a simple screening tool available. Uh, I believe that the Barkoff criteria are fantastic, and I think that what these criteria allow for is an increased uh, degree of specificity. So one can be more certain that this is in alignment with a demyelinating process and, and not something that uh, is nonspecific and related to microvascular disease, uh, recreational drug use, et cetera. So I think that what these criteria offer are a high degree of specificity. Um, to, to take a, a somewhat different approach in answering it, I think that a very unique study would be one where, where you look at those individuals who don't meet Barkoff criteria but still have the flavor of having an MRI scan that is highly suggestive of MS and, and following those individuals long-term. I think that's, that's still very important. But I think that for our research, what we're looking for is a group of people. We're stacking the deck in our favor, and we're looking for people that really have the flavor of MS on their imaging. A, a neurologist in Virginia is particularly interested in the question of neuroprotection, which has, of course, been a very hot 
topic uh, in MS as well as in some other neurological fields. But this doctor asked whether there are any data to support the concept of neuroprotection in patients who are treated at this early stage of radiologically isolated syndromes. So I think one of the challenges is how we define neuroprotection. And I think uh, MS experts have been fighting with that recently. Uh, is neuroprotection one where where we're protect you know where we we are uh, protecting individuals from further radiologic progression, or is it one where we use novel imaging metrics to see if we can preserve uh, neurons at a uh, microscopic or somewhat microscopic level? Uh, so I think the definition is is still a bit cloudy. Um, there are no data at present that that suggests that any medicines help to provide a neuroprotective benefit in patients. But I think from a practical standpoint, once we've identified the group that is stratified at being at highest risk, if we could perhaps intervene in a large trial, uh, it may be of benefit, and maybe in a trial like that, we, we could uh, have data that suggests that there is uh, benefit with treatment. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, work going on now uh, on identifying genetic factors in multiple sclerosis, and I think uh, your center at UCSF has been particularly on the forefront of this work. Uh, one of the listeners asked whether there are any data that combine uh, genetic testing with um, your type of information about these very early patients. Uh, not yet. We've, we have looked at the most consistent uh, genetic marker in, in MS in the past, and that's uh, HLA-DRB1 star 1501 that comprises the DR2 complex on chromosome 6. And we looked at it uh, in a very large cohort of MS patients that exceeded uh, 500, looking for um, or uh, trying to assess whether or not the gene itself uh, impacted one's lesion load, performance on the PASAT, uh, and brain atrophy measures. And we published this in Brain in uh, 2009. Um, looking at the effects of, of any gene uh, has not been done thus far. Well, certainly as this field moves forward, that would be very interesting to see what the genetic uh, factors are in these very early stage patients. Definitely. A, uh, a physician in Ohio notes that you had suggested continued surveillance in patients presenting with these radiologically isolated syndromes, but uh, he'd like you to be a little bit more specific. W what's the requested surveillance? Uh, what's the process over what kinds of time frames? And, and he wants to know how you would follow up and engage a primary care physician because he's concerned that a lot of these patients get lost in the system. Uh, most definitely. Uh, we are recommending at least an annual MRI scan. So when individuals have either nonspecific findings or findings that are highly suggestive of MS, we do recommend that they have an annual MRI scan. And what we're looking for is progression, so any interval change and accumulation of a lesion or the presence of contrast enhancement on the follow-up scan. Um, I, I agree with the loss to follow-up uh, issue. We've experienced that ourselves. And, and having you know, a, a great retention plan during a research study is is vital. I think that when people feel great, um, they they may tend to forget that these changes exist on their imaging study, and they may not they may decide not to see their given physician. Um, 
I think that having primary care physicians be actively involved in, in ensuring that these people aren't lost and, and that things are being done during their routine health screens, uh, I, I think that would be fantastic, actually, but I, I don't have an exact um, recommendation as to how that should be done. Great. Well, this might be a good moment to ask the operator whether whether there are any questions coming in over the telephone lines while we continue to work through our uh, emailed questions. And it appears that we have no telephone questions at this time. But as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question over the phone, it's star and one on your touchtone phone. So, Dr. Akuda, another uh, listener asked whether there has been any long, uh, whether you are aware of any of these radiologically isolated syndromes who have ended up declaring themselves as having another diagnosis? And, and if so, what condition and what kind of follow-up do you have? So that's actually a fantastic question. And thus far, we have not had anyone uh, who's um, been identified with, with another process other than what appears to be demyelination. So that hasn't occurred or we, we haven't encountered that yet, which is great, but that is a, 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 an excellent point, is uh, we need to continue to follow these people and to keep an open mind uh, because we, we don't have 100% specificity in what we're doing in, in predicting or, or in relaying that this is truly multiple sclerosis. Um, another physician in Maryland asked the question, uh, and I'm not quite certain that I understand the gist of it, but he wants to know how would you stratify your patients from the radiologically isolated syndrome to the clinically isolated syndrome? What it ranks as the most important criteria? I see. I, I think I, I may, well, I'll, I'll try and answer it as best as I can. Um, if, if one were to predict a group that would be at highest risk for conversion uh, in RIS, I think you would choose individuals who have a family history where there are a number of people afflicted with multiple sclerosis. Uh, what that affords you is confidence that this is probably multiple sclerosis or what looks to be multiple sclerosis on an imaging study given their family history and given their age. So it does uh, increase the specificity that uh, your hypothesis is correct. Mm -hmm. uh, um, they may be at the highest risk for conversion and that may be in part due to the fact that um, they have such a strong family history. Now, that doesn't necessarily hold true for CIS patients, and what tends to hold true for CIS patients are those who have a very high lesion load. And we know these data from, you know, back from the optic neuritis treatment trials uh, that were conducted. So uh, I think in RIS, uh, one could uh, somewhat hypothesize that those with a family history may be at highest risk. Also those with a very high lesion load would be at highest risk for progression, or those with contrast enhancement on their MRI scan, as well as uh, any interval change identified over the course of time in RIS. I think you did uh, mention this in your introductory comments, but perhaps uh, it, it bears repeating, especially in view of a question that has come in. Could you Could you go over again the, uh, the the data on the number of patients that actually did progress from um, RIS to CIS and and what that time frame was. So what we're what we're seeing is that a third of patients, uh, ten of thirty, and uh, ten of thirty patients actually uh, converted uh, over the course of time, and that time frame was five years or five point three years, a median time frame. Now it's it's 
are these numbers set in stone? Absolutely not. So, so what we're saying is, is that, well, approximately a third of patients over a median time frame of five years uh, will likely convert. Um, you know, these data may change once larger studies are, are performed. I think it's, it was nice to see that uh, data from an outside group outside of UCSF also arrived at a similar uh, number, which was uh, nice to see. Um, but that's the current number we're using to predict risk, but it's not a number that's set in stone. Right. And um, do you have any – I think there were some slight differences between your data and the, the data that Dr. Lebrun obtained in, in France. Y yes. Um, I think one of the key differences is that we have proposed criteria for RIS, and um, I, I think that's important because we need uh, guidance and so that everyone's on the same playing field when we see patients actively in clinic, and it's nice to have uh, criteria and that, that we can uh, look to uh, to guide us. Mm -hmm. uh, naturally, there are differences, genetic differences amongst individuals, lesion load differences, uh, definitely a variety of differences between the two cohorts. Um, and I, I think this group will, will definitely be uh, heterogeneous, uh, regardless of where they come from. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, I, I, I'm really pushing for, for further studies uh, so that we can get a better handle on, on what we're looking at. Um, and that relates to a question that another uh, listener had is, um, how long does this kind of surveillance need to continue? If you if you have an unchanging MRI and an unchanging clinical course, do you ever throw in the towel? Yeah, that's a fantastic question and and one that I don't have the answer to. Uh, it's a good point. I mean, after five years or seven years, do you continue to look or or do you stretch out that interval to a scan every two years? Mm -hmm. uh, we somewhat do that with established MS cases where uh, a patient who's 25 will, will have a different recommendation for scanning than a person who is 65 and has had MS for, for, for decades. Uh, I think that it's reasonable to, to stretch out the scan intervals after they've been surveyed over perhaps the course of five years, with annual scans being performed within that five years. But... Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I, in my own practice, I, I've actually been going out probably to about three years when I've seen these radiologically isolated patients. Uh, I'd been getting a, a new scan three months later, six months after that, and then a year after that, and another year after that, which takes me about, out to about three years since most of the conversions have occurred in, within about three years. I guess it's reasonable to go out to five, but then I think uh, it's probably reasonable to say to a patient, well, you know, something can happen at any point, but why don't we wait and see if something happens clinically to you? And, and I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, some some listeners have been uh, wondering about, about other workup. Um, if you saw a patient like this with no clinically uh, relevant symptoms and a, a very positive MRI, for example, would you recommend that that patient have a have a lumbar puncture? Uh, we are recommending that. Um, uh, we also recommend that uh, patients have a or subjects have an MRI scan of the cervical spine. I think that any findings on the cervical spine uh, in a young individual uh, that they are very convincing for 
demyelinating disease. We tend not to see microvascular insults to the spinal cord. Uh, so if, if a brain MRI scan is equivocal and a physician is uncertain where this person may fall, if it's more towards MS or if this is towards migraine headache changes or age-related changes, I think the spinal cord does help. Um, we do, uh, and community physicians have performed spinal taps on these subjects. They've performed visual evoked potentials and somatosensory evoked potentials. Uh, so they've undergone many tests, including OCT. But of course, the question comes back, I think, to to really the treatment issue. And yes. <laughs> so, so suppose you had this patient that that already met the Barkoff criteria on the brain MRI. Would you? I mean, in general, I think you and others have advocated not treating at that point, um, since you certainly haven't met criteria for dissemination in time. Yes. Um, suppose there were a lesion on on spinal MRI, would that change your view, or is it merely because you're a research center that you would want to gather that kind of data? Uh, I, I think that the, the spinal cord MRI scan does uh, key you in that a given individual may be at a higher risk for conversion. Mm -hmm. I think that it does become very difficult when subjects are accumulating five contrast-enhancing lesions, ten contrast-enhancing lesions over the course of 12 months, and we've seen this. I think... Um, it's, it's tough for me to give a very objective answer. I think as a researcher, you'd like to see as clean of a cohort as possible when you're studying the natural history of something. Yet, you know, I also have to be realistic. You know, what is, you know, what if this were myself? And knowing what I know about uh, data that exists uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, neuronal injury following any inflammatory lesion within the brain, work by Bruce Trapp, would I undergo treatment? And, and the answer is probably yes. So uh, it's, it, it is very difficult for, for, for me to give a truly objective answer. Um, there are individual cases where uh, patients do decide to go on treatment uh, because they have uh, developed a new brainstem lesion that ironically is, is asymptomatic or a new cerebellar lesion or, or multiple lesions that are super tentorial. And we, granted, we don't have uh, data as to whether or not uh, medicines are effective in, R in RIS, we do know that the changes that we're seeing fall along the same path uh, to multiple sclerosis and represent ultimately the same process, the same underlying uh, process. So therefore, any treatment one would think uh, would, would be uh, beneficial to them with active disease. I think this might be a good moment to pause again and see, make sure that we're not overlooking any questions that have come in over the telephone line. So, operator, maybe you can check that. Thank you. We do have two phone questions at this time. Our first comes from Lorenzo Aguilar. Your line is now open. Hi. Um, I um, apologize if I digress a little bit. Um, my I just saw a patient, uh, a 44-year-old lady, uh, left-handed. She had one uh, MRI that has lesions, more than 3 millimeter, uh, on strategic location in corpus callosum and in um, the, the spinal cord as well as in the semi-ovale. Um, but she gave me a very weak clinical symptom that, I could not really associate with uh, the MRI finding. She said that she had this visual uh, problem where she was very 
photosensitive to the light, denies any pain, denies any focal eye pain. When she wears dark, dark glasses, it relieves her photosensitivity. How will I approach this kind of presentation? So I, I think um, uh, she definitely uh, needs an evaluation to understand further what that visual difficulty was secondary to, if it was uh, a migraine headache process or if it was uh, really due to optic neuritis or some injury to the uh, anterior visual pathway. There's no MRI findings on the optic nerve. Okay. Has she had visual evoke potential studies or OCT studies as well? No, no. Um, she was just my patient last week. So. I see. So um, one of the things that, that uh, we did in our cohort was to exclude individuals where the history was uh, somewhat borderline, uh, similar to this case, where uh, it, it could be an optic nerve event or it could be secondary to something else, but uh, the, the flavor of it, uh, if there's color desaturation or, or, or any alterations that you're seeing on neurological examination that would somewhat push you more towards, you know, perhaps this person had their first clinical event involving the optic nerve. Um, I think that in this situation, you would need to do the other studies to make sure she doesn't have a mixed connective tissue disorder uh, or thyroid dysfunction and uh, be convinced that this is either related to a, he uh, a headache event or if this is uh, more along the path of something demyelinating. Um, there, there was no headache. There was no residual visual deficit after that uh, episode, and it actually lasted for about a month. I of see. Increased photosensitivity that she has to wear these dark eye gla uh, glasses for for that uh, same time frame. But no vision deficit, no nothing at all. And, and, and on MRI, it's very clear, very clean optic nerve in the occipital area. So, so it, it was actually just photosensitivity over the course of months, a, yeah. a, a given month, and not necessarily um, a change in her visual acuity? No, no, nothing, uh, nothing at all. And during my fundoscopy, there is no uh, uh, paleness or any findings at I see. all. Well, it sounds as if she's going to need just continued follow-up and ophthalmological uh, <clears throat> evaluations. I, I think we probably ought to go on to the other uh, questioner on the line. Of course. Our next question will come from the site of Joe King. Your line is now open. Thank you. Uh, thank you for an excellent discussion. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist uh, in Tucson, Arizona, and have worked a good bit with uh, uh, patients with addictive disorders, of course, including recreational drugs. Could you elaborate on excluding the uh, uh, patients uh, in the criteria for RIS uh, if they've had a history of recreational drug use abuse? Okay. So these are individuals who are using um, intravenous drugs. Oh, okay. IV use. IV, but uh, oral as well or inhaled. Uh, so these are individuals who have used uh, crystal meth, heroin, cocaine, uh, prolonged use of ecstasy, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, we, we don't have uh, concrete definitions as to how we split uh, those different drug types and the duration and, or doses, uh, but we're just using it as, as a screen, as, as a potential red flag for these people. Okay. Thank you. Great. Are there any other phone questions, operator? We have no other phone questions at this time. All right. Well, let's go back to, to pursuing um, the RIS a little bit further. Uh, 
One, uh, of course, always, since we don't have any specific tests for MS, we're continually trying to make uh, sort of risk-benefit decisions, which means that we get as much information we can and and then um, weigh our options. So uh, one one physician called in about a particular uh, patient that she had who's uh, who meets the RIS criteria, is still in, asymptomatic, but has the added wrinkle that she has a genetic link in that her mother has multiple sclerosis. And she asked specifically, Dr. Okuda, whether you would start treatment in that case, situation or whether you would still not treat and, and follow. Uh, I, that's a really, um, I'm being cornered here again. <laughs> uh, I, I actually think that it would be reasonable to, to take a more conservative approach and to wait uh, to see if there are any changes present, uh, even with a defined family history. Um, there are a few great MRI studies uh, out there, one that's done by DeStefano, who actually um, traveled around in a mobile MRI unit in Sardinia, uh, tracking down patients with uh, a given family history for multiple sclerosis who are, who are asymptomatic. We do know that these changes exist in people with sporadic MS and familial uh, MS. Uh, the big question is, do all these individuals convert to multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. and that num you know that answer is unclear, and uh, and and number two, you know the big question about treatment once again. But if I were to just provide an answer, I probably would say uh, to to just take a conservative approach and to continue with the surveillance. Mm -hmm. And we of course have tended to regard these regard these patients as clinically asymptomatic. But uh, one of the listeners asked whether you would recommend neuropsychological testing to be done when there are no symptoms present, given these, uh, these imaging lesion loads that patients have. So that's a fantastic comment, and this is actually a proposed study that we submitted to the National MS Society. And what we want to do in, uh, is to study uh, a battery of neuropsychiatric tests in RIS subjects. And what we're trying to use are tests that are being used in Huntington's disease uh, family members, so or, or I'm sorry, uh, those who possess the gene for for Huntington's disease who have not yet manifested with any symptoms yet. So there are neuropsych tests out there that can pick up uh, deficits even before the physical manifestations of Huntington's disease show up, and we're trying to use those tests in RIS to see if there are any cognitive uh, deficits in these subjects because are they truly asymptomatic now? Or is it one where they're just not uh, cognizant of, of any uh, cognitive decline that may actually be present? Yeah, that would be certainly an, an interesting thing to learn. Uh, another very hot area of interest in the MS world is the question of vitamin D. And uh, one listener wants to know whether vitamin D levels were measured on these patients with radiological progression or or I guess maybe raising the possibility of whether it might be interesting to see whether um, low vitamin D levels in these patients at the RIS time point would correlate with a conversion to, to definite MS. I, I think definitely. We are collecting blood, and this is a marker that we will uh, definitely investigate. I think the difficulty here is that 
uh, majority of individuals in the United States are deficient in vitamin D. Um, Add mix with the fact that many MS patients, because of the Internet, are now taking um, ample amounts of, of vitamin D daily. So that's uh, somewhat disrupting science to some extent. But vitamin D is a very hot topic in multiple sclerosis. So we don't have data right now highlighting uh, any deficiencies in RIS subjects, but this is something that we'll definitely pursue. And another wants to know um, what you actually regard as a high lesion load on MRI. <laughs> uh, boy, it's another tough question because it, it, it falls into two categories. One is lesion number, and the other is lesion volume. And lesion volumes are always harder to uh, determine uh, uh, because they, they do take a lot of post-processing time. Uh, the other aspect is location. Do they fall in areas of of eloquence, and um, that should be probably specified uh, better in my answer. But if in those subjects who have brainstem changes or cerebellar changes or spinal cord changes, they are also likely uh, at a higher risk of developing a first symptom. But in terms of high lesion load uh, itself, it's, it's, we define it as those individuals who have more than 10 lesions that measure at least three millimeters. Mm-hmm. But that's not a, a cutoff point that's set in stone. I think that what also needs to be looked at is the geographical placement of lesions as well. And certainly we do have some data from the CIS literature that that uh, more than nine T2 hyperintense lesions seems to increase the likelihood of, uh, of, of reaching certain disability milestones yes. down the road. Well, uh, we're, we're getting close to the end, the end of our time, and it's clear... Uh, Dr. Okuda, that you've uh, piqued the interest of a lot of a lot of listeners with this very provocative topic, and and we can maybe uh, close up by following up with you because one has asked uh, uh, how they can send a patient to you to be uh, uh, a participant in your study, and uh, another has asked how he could get a hold of really the specific protocol for for the follow up surveillance that that you are recommending. So I'll be happy to provide that information uh, to them, and I can leave my email address, and listeners could uh, contact me. And my email address is my first name. It's spelled D-A-R-I-N dot my last name, O-K-U-D-A, D as in dog, at U-C-S-F dot E-D-U. Uh, that's difficult to remember. They can always uh, Google uh, R-I-S and and my name and um they'll be able to uh, find a link to our center. Well, well, that's fantastic. Um, I know that, that we created uh, such a stir with this subject that, that I'm afraid there are some questions that we're not going to get to um, during the hour we have today, but I'll, I'll comment about how you might get your question answered in just a moment. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Okuda for joining me today and especially for helping us translate this latest evidence into improvements in practice. Thank you to our audience for joining us as well. And if you were not able to get your question answered, please send an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com. That's questions with a plural at cmeoutfitters.com by February the 15th, 2010. Dr. Okuda and I will answer questions online over the next two weeks, 
and post those responses at www.neurosciencecme.com slash journal club. I'm Dr. Aaron Miller, thanking you for taking time to join us today. I hope you're able to incorporate this evidence into your practice to improve the care of your patients. Have a great rest of the day, and thanks again. Bye now.